0: Galatians 4, Sin and Judgment Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor ag- until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to, ex- and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise." But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Amen. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of sonship and slavery. Sonship meaning born a son into a free family, not a slave family, and then a slave, and the relationship that the son and the slave have in the same household. Now, he's saying this because the essential and basic message is that when the son and the slave assuming the son is a male, the slave is a male, and both are young, until the date set by the father for the son to receive whatever benefits as a free son, the son is treated like a slave. They have the same obligations, the same treatment. That's the way they are in the household. But at a certain point, When the son's date was set by the father, then the son is released from the same treatment he receives as a slave and receives all the benefits of a son at a certain age. And this is compared to us and our conversion. That in the world, we live just like the people of the world. We don't know who is a son of God and who is a slave who is a slave and who is a son. And even the individual does not know he is a son of God until the conversion takes place. He is treated just like everybody else. This is similar to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, when it says that we were children of wrath even as the rest are. The rest of the world still are children of wrath, treated just like anybody else in slavery, We were in slavery too. We had to do whatever until the date set. This is the change. So if this is what is used here as a comparison, an analogy, then we have to understand that once our conversion has taken place, once we have received the actual benefits of sonship, why resort back to our old ways? Why go back to the evil practices and the evil beliefs of the past? Instead, they should be rejected. And even when these deeds are done in reference to good things, he says in verse 3: elemental things of the world. In verse 9, he also says: weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. What are these elemental things of the world, weak and worthless elemental things, to which we were enslaved, or at least the Galatians were enslaved? Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Or as he says in chapter 5, verse 3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. He means here the rituals or the festivals or the ceremonial law that though they are good in terms of their purpose to illustrate the holiness of God and to illustrate the high requirements, exacting demands of God to uh, for us to obey. They have that place, but they never had the place to save us from sins. They had the place of illustrating God's righteousness and our unrighteousness, yet the faith should have been in Christ. When one doesn't understand it, and one doesn't even understand, uh, understand it in relation to the gospel of Christ and the spirit within, then there's a problem. This is what he's addressing in verses 1 to 7, that there should no longer be our view the way it used to be in slavery to the things that were required under the law. No more of that. Now that we are, have the Spirit, we also have the Spirit of the Son of God. He says in verse 6, we're no longer under the requirements and penalty and impossibility of keeping the law. We're no longer under the law. Now we are an heir through God. And now we can sincerely and genuinely call God our Father. Verses 6 and 7. This is the judgment and the discernment we should have on this matter. Then verses 8 to 11. 8 to 11. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Remember the past? We were slaves to that which by nature was not God. We treated those things as our master's, as our gods, they had us under their spell, under their control. That's when we did not know God. But now, in verse 9, we do know God, so there should be a difference. Not only should there be a difference because we know God, we ought to realize that the more important is to be known by God. Our knowing God is very significant. We should know God. But what's more significant is if God knows us. That's what Jesus said. Depart from me, you who who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. So God must know us. We must be certain that he knows us as one of his children. Then if God does know us, there should be no resorting back, no turning back, no going back to the old ways and the old things. Because those ways will enslave us, he says in verse 9, all over again. Mind you, he has in view... The good law of God. If we don't understand the good law of God and its proper role in our knowledge of God, knowledge of ourselves, and knowledge of true salvation, if we don't know the good law of God, what its purpose is, then we will be enslaved all over again. Verse 9. And his examples are verse 10 when we observe days and months and seasons and years according to the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. The apostle is fearful. He's concerned that after preaching the truth to the Galatians, They quickly desert the truth of Christ, the grace of Christ, for a different gospel, which is really not another. Chapter 1, 6 to 10. He's concerned that he did all that work over them, but that work is now in vain. He has spoken of the potential of the vain work he performed among them, and it would be vain in this way. He preached the truth, He was faithful, he was diligent, he was fervent in spirit to do the will of God among them, but he's afraid that most, if not all, of the Galatians had stony, cold hearts that initially happily received the word of the gospel, but really they were not true believers. He's concerned about that. He says this in chapter 2 verse 2. He said, "For fear that I'm two, two. for fear that I might be running or had run in vain." Chapter 3 verse 4, "Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain?" This is the concern of the apostle Is it possible for people to hear the truth, the pure truth, the apostolic truth, and walk away from it because they are stiff-necked, stubborn, cold, stony-hearted people? Yes. That's the fear he has over the Galatians. That should not be with any of us, listening to the truth day in and day out, knowing the truth, hearing it accurately presented, and then walking away from it for an alternate salvation, an alternate worldview, another way of looking at things, a more convenient and better way of looking at things, at least according to carnal wisdom. That can and should not be the case. Well, then in 12 to 20, he reminds them of the way they used to be, at least the way they used to be with the Apostle Paul. Verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. He wants them to be like he is. He wants them to be like he is, convicted And convinced over the truth. When he says, You have done me no wrong, he means not that they're not offending him and they're not sinning against him. They are in that way. But ultimately, their sin is not against him, but against God. Ultimately, when they reject the apostles' message, they are rejecting God's message of salvation. And then 13, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. A bodily illness in the Apostle Paul turned out to be something good and beneficial and even salvific to at least some or a few of the Galatians. This is contrary to those who say that. Bodily illnesses are only evil and there's no redemptive possibility with them. But in this place, verse 13, because of the apostle's bodily illness, it restricted something about his preaching or travel. He had to stay somewhere and he had to go somewhere and he preached to the Galatians because of this bodily illness. And that turned out to be for their benefit. Then in 14, when he had that bodily illness, he says, he commends them, you did not despise me and you did not loathe me. You didn't look at it as a negative thing. In fact, you treated me like an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself. You treated me very well. You took care of me in this time of my bodily illness. You were so loving to me, so kind to me, that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. That's how devoted and loving you were toward me when I first preached the gospel to you, when I had this bodily illness. You would have even plucked out your eyes for me, which might indicate he may have had some kind of um, illness in the eyes. Verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Suddenly, from being a friend, a faithful friend, have I now become a hostile enemy to you because I'm telling you the truth? Why wouldn't you want to know the truth? And why would you now make me your enemy and doubt what I'm telling you and avoid me and reject the original gospel I preached to you? Why are you doing that? You should happily receive the truth and not consider me your enemy. Verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18 He's teaching that we ought to be commended or commend others on a valid basis. On a valid basis and in a valid way. We ought to be commended and commend others in a proper way, in a biblical way. But the false teachers are not doing that. He says in verse 17. They wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. He's saying, they are playing hard to get. They're saying, I have this pot of gold over here, but you have to come find it. You have to come seek it. You have to strain for it. Basically, that's the kind of temptation they are presenting that they have this special way of salvation, special way of pleasing God, you must come to them, and if you don't come to them, then you won't have it. That's not the right way. Then his genuine concern, very tender concern, is in 19 and 20. The Apostle's genuine and tender concern He calls them children. He says, my children, my children. And normally, father and mother have an extra tenderness for their own children. That's natural and that's good. But he says here, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I was toilsome, I labored, I had birth pangs when I first toiled among you, and now it's happening again. It's happening again that I have these intense labor pains to form Christ in you. I want you to come forth fully formed, formed according to the image of Christ. And he wants to be tender among them. He d- doesn't like having to be so stern and firm with them. Verse 20 But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This doesn't mean that he has been sinning with his harsh and firm and stern tone thus far. Because whenever something needs to be dealt with in a very strict and decisive way, it has to be handled that way. It's not easy to excise cancer from the body. It's going to be painful for the patient. It's even painful to a tender doctor who understands pain and can see the look on the patient's face. See the patient twitching and turning, having to deal with the pain of excision of cancer from the body. That's the way the Apostle Paul is. He has to do that to get rid of the cancer, but he wishes he didn't have to do that. He wishes that he could just sit down and have a good time with them. There is a place for that too. But not when sin is on the surface and has to be treated because sin is cancerous. As he says in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. The leaven or yeast, just a little bit, is placed in a lump of dough, but it makes the whole lump rise. Just a little bit of yeast will make the whole lump rise. Rise. That's the way disease is, and that's the way spiritual disease is. Finally, in thir- uh, 21 to 31, 21 to 31, he presents another illustration, another analogy. And this is returning to what he said at the beginning of the chapter in terms of slavery and freedom, but with another example of slavery and freedom. In this example in 21 to 31, he sets Abraham, Abraham's wife Sarah, and the Jerusalem above or the heavenly Zion as the free woman and the son of the free woman as a free son, freed from sin. And the penalty of sin. On the other side is the bondwoman or the slave woman, the maid slave, who is Hagar, and she has a son named Ishmael. He's not named here, she is named, but he is not. And Ishmael and Sinai and the present Jerusalem, meaning the inhabitants of the present Jerusalem who do not believe the gospel, they are on the other side and they are also the flesh. On the negative side is the flesh. On the positive side is the spirit from heaven and those who have the spirit from heaven. That's essentially this analogy in 21 to 31. And if that's the case, Who wants to be on the side of slavery, to sin, and an object of judgment? Nobody, if he's thinking correctly. Verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? There we have hypocrites, hypocrites, and he challenges them. He says, you want to be under law that is you want to be uh, to be under the obligations of the law because you think that in your goodness you will be able to keep the law sufficiently enough to earn your salvation but he says do you not listen to the law you're claiming the law but you're disobeying the law you're not even listening to what it says because the law will tell you that your attempts your goals are impossible And the very law that you are claiming teaches against you. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Yes, Genesis chapters 16, 17, and 21. 16 and 17 and 21. Chapter 16, Ishmael. Chapter 17, Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael are both mentioned. And then 21, The fact that Isaac is the chosen one and Ishmael the the rejected one, that is made clear by Genesis 21, if it wasn't so beforehand. There. Why did the book of Genesis record? Why did Moses, by the Spirit, record the life of Abraham in relation to his wife, the free woman, Sarah, and his wife, the bondwoman, the slave woman, Hagar, and their sons, Isaac from Sarah, Ishmael from Hagar, both sons of Abraham. Why are these passages written? Why are they recorded? They are recorded for us to listen to them, to interpret them correctly. Verse 23, But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman through the promise. That is, there was no promise, no prediction, no promise, no faith in relation to the birth of Ishmael. Yes, there was marriage. Yes, there was conception. Yes, there was birth. Yes, there was a son born. All of that happened just as it did with Isaac, Sarah conceiving Isaac. However, in relation to Isaac, Isaac was born of a free woman. Isaac was born by a miracle. Isaac was born by a promise. God predicted before the conception actually took place, and it took place miraculously because Abraham and Sarah were 89 and 99, when the promise was made, and then 90 and 100 when the birth of Isaac took place. There were significant promises in relation to the birth of Isaac, and not only in relation to his birth, but why Isaac? Because through Isaac, your descendants or your seed shall be called. As it says in Genesis chapter 21, through Isaac your descendants shall be called or named. That means that Isaac would be the ancestor of the greatest seed or descendant of Isaac, Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 3:16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed that is Christ. And cross reference that to Genesis chapter 21 9 to 13. Through Isaac your seed shall be called. Then 24. He proceeds with his analogy. He calls it an allegory. His analogy or illustration or allegory. He says here, these two women are two covenants. Two women, two covenants. They represent two covenants. Mount Sinai, slaves, Hagar. That's in verse 24. Mount Sinai, Represents slavery and Hagar represents slavery. She was a slave woman married to Abraham. That's in relation to Sinai. And who gave the covenant? Who delivered the covenant at Sinai? Moses. Genesis chapter 19. Moses did at Mount Sinai. Moses' purpose was to make everybody a slave. To make everybody be under the law, under the requirement of the law, under the jurisdiction of the law. So that the law explains the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the penalty for the sinfulness of man. He did that on purpose. To put everybody under the law. So that we are all held guilty for our sins. Sinai is that covenant, is the covenant that does that to us and for us. That is first. That must happen in all of us pre-conversion. So 25. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Hagar, Mount Sinai, present Jerusalem, Because present Jerusalem, the vast majority, don't believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. So they are still in slavery to sin. Now the city, Jerusalem, is personified as a mother. The Bible does this often, especially in the prophets, and right here we have it by the apostle. The city itself is personified personified as a woman, a mother, with many children. Her inhabitants are the children of the mother city. That's in verse 25. That means that all of the unconverted, all of the unbelievers are just like the present Jerusalem in slavery with her children. Hagar represents that. Sinai represents that. Remember, the Galatian heretics want to return to the ceremonies of Sinai that Moses delivered. And he's preaching, the apostles preaching against it. 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the one, than of the one who has a husband. The Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is our mother. If the heavenly Jerusalem is our mother, not the earthly Jerusalem, will that not be heavenly? Will that not be heavenly? Eternal salvation for us, redemption, forgiveness, will that not give us access to heaven? If our mother is in heaven, spiritually speaking, won't the children also be in heaven? That's the point, verse 26. Because she's a free mother, the heavenly mother. This also reminds us that those who are in heaven are free. That which proceeds out of heaven brings freedom to the earth so that we're no longer in bondage to sin, but we are free from bondage to sin in Christ. God himself has a free will, and then he grants to us to have freedom from sin. That is true free will. 27, verse 27 Quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. Isaiah 54, 1. And if the detractors and critics of the Apostle Paul say, Paul, you are allegorizing. Paul, you're taking Genesis out of context. Paul, you misunderstand Sinai and the book of Exodus. You don't know what you're talking about. Paul's critics do that. However, Paul quotes Isaiah. And before Paul said this, Isaiah comments just like the Apostle Paul. In Isaiah 54.1, Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Paul, he is telling the barren woman to rejoice, to break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the than of the one who has a husband. What's Isaiah mean? The same as what Paul means. That is, that Sarah, though she was barren, she could not conceive. A time came when she did conceive by the promise, miraculous promise of God. And after she did conceive, the promise is that her descendants will be more numerous than the descendants of Hagar. That's what Isaiah is talking about in 27. The barren woman, Sarah, she signifies in the spiritual sense our heavenly mother who bears numerous children, And though it seems barren now, she will, the barren woman, will have more children than the one who has a husband and has children already at a young age. He's talking about spiritual things. He's saying that the children of the heavenly Jerusalem will be very numerous. Isaiah said that. Now Paul says the same. 28. And you brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. There's the connection between Isaac and us. Just as Isaac was born physically and spiritually by this miraculous promise, even so we will be born first, miraculously in a spiritual way, and then we will be born on the day of resurrection in a physical way. That promise to Isaac is also applicable to us. That's why he calls us children of promise. Then 29, the reality of our times. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. In Genesis 21, 9, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Ishmael, the reprobate, persecuted elect Isaac. And that's the way it'll always be. That's why he says, but as at that time, so it is now also. Even today, the reprobate will persecute the elect, as they did to Isaac, Ishmael to Isaac. We are born according to the Spirit. They are born only and merely according to the flesh. Then, 30. Should we participate? Should we hold hands? Should we join forces? Should we huddle in prayer? and say we worship the same God and we have the same salvation? Verse 30. No. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. From Genesis 21, 10, and 12. Genesis 21, 10, and 12. No. No. When the bondwoman and her son revealed who they really were, truly were, it was time for them to be separated from the free woman and the free son, from Sarah and Isaac. There needed to be separation because the persecution was taking place. And remember, even Jesus said in Matthew 7:6, Do not cast your pearls before swine, And do not give what is holy to dogs. Why? Lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. There comes a point when the dogs and hogs have to quit hearing the truth, the pearls, the gold. They have to quit hearing it. And if we persist in being with them and intermingling with them, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They might devour you. And this is the reason there must be separation. That's why Hagar and Ishmael were cast out of the household. 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman but of the free woman. That's who we are. And if that's who we are, we must act in accordance with it as the Bible describes it. Not as false teachers describe it, but as the Holy Word of God describes it. Let's practice this kind of discernment in knowing the difference between truth and falsehood light and darkness. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.